everyone. Rob, uh, we're joined today uh, by a great guest. He is the current SVP of Operations and Sustainability at Betterment. He's also a FinTech Advisory Committee member for FINRA. We're here to talk about ESG and socially responsible investing. Uh, we know Betterment has come out with some great features and portfolios around this emerging investment strategy. So without further ado, Rob, I'd like to introduce our guest, Boris Kentoff. Boris, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Hello. So as we usually do when we start off, you know, could you just tell our audience a little bit about your background and you know, what led you to your current role at Betterment um, and maybe a little bit you know, about your role uh, working with FINRA as well? Sure. Um, so uh, just a quick, uh, quick context for Betterment, which is uh, the, the first and largest independent financial advisor that offers automated uh, wealth management services. Uh, we're managing something like $33 billion today uh, for about 700,000 clients both um, direct to consumer as well as uh, we do work with, uh, with advisors uh, who use our platform in the betterment for advisors uh, lane. We also have a 401k business where we offer managed uh, 401k services. Um, my, I, I, I've been at betterment for nine years, actually. I started here um, in early 2013. It was a 15-person company. I was, you know, came in as basically an operations uh, and legal uh, department, uh, all in one person. <laughs> My background was, uh, I started as a software engineer, as a computer science major, did that for a little while out of college. Then I went to law school, wound up practicing corporate tax law for a few years, um, mostly you know taxation of capital markets transactions, debt equity for uh, large uh, you know, blue chip type issuances. Um, and so when I got to Betterment, I really, uh, at that early stage, I wound up doing a whole lot of stuff uh, because I was familiar with, you know, reading dense regulations. I wound up getting pretty deep into the SEC FINRA world, just <laughs> as Betterment was scaling out our trading and custody operations um, because we are both an advisor and a broker dealer. Uh, and that automated uh, stack that allowed us to offer and democratize really portfolio management at any balance size, uh, have our algorithms, you know, effectively uh, deliver value across, you know, whether you have a thousand dollars or a million dollars invested with us, that part of the business, the broker dealer eventually became the area where I was uh, most, most active. Um, and so in connection with being a, uh, being now the, the, the CEO of Betterment Securities, which is a broker dealer subsidiary, I worked with FINRA quite a, quite a lot, first in the context of annual cycle exams, and then eventually uh, we started talking outside of uh, that delightful context and more to, uh, towards emerging issues and policy. Um, and I continue to work with those folks really closely um, uh, on the FINRA's FinTech Committee. Speaking of emerging issues and policy, uh, let's dive right in here to what we're uh, uh, talking about. Uh, you know, I want to get some definitions kind of correct here or, or give our audience um, an explanation of, of what ESG is, what SRI is, you know, what sustainability investing is. So we're kind of on the same uh, wavelength here. Can you kind of give us an explanation um, on the different terminology in regards to ESG? Yeah, boy, that's a really, that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> I think 
part of the challenge here really is that these things mean so many different things to different people. Mm-hmm. Um, ESG, uh, and a lot of this terminology sort of comes out of the institutional space, right? It's, it's not at all, uh, it does not have its roots in the retail space. So something like ESG, just all these acronyms, right? You can yeah. just tell that this is like, uh, <laughs> I, like to, I like to joke that it's kind of like, it sounds like a, a bunch of, you know, Belgian technocrats talking to like a <laughs> Nor- Norwegian sovereign wealth fund, you know, about <laughs> like, you know, impact and scoring. The reality is that, um, of course, ESG, I'm sure most people are familiar, like that the E stands for environmental, the mm-hmm. S for social, the G for governance. And so it's really this attempt to capture, you know, in a, in a single magic number, you know, <laughs> the good, the good things. Yes. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, if we want to get into it, we can, we can unpack all the, the myriad of reasons why that's a problematic approach it can be very challenging. Sustainable investing is a much newer term and it's, it, it tends to be, uh, you know, favored uh, by in the retail crowd, um, sort of like when you're talking to the public at large, because sustainable actually, you know, resonates emotionally. It's what people mm-hmm. want. You know, people don't want ESG. Right. <laughs> People, people don't know what ESG means, but people right. want everything they do to be sustainable, you know, particularly like, you know, not to, not to get too cliche about it, but when you're doing the generational analysis, like, I don't know, Morgan Stanley put out a study, something like 99% of millennial investors would like to vote sustainable, invest sustainably, right? So like, who wouldn't? Sounds great, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> SRI, uh, socially responsible investing, in a way sort of like bridges the gap between this like technocratic acronym world and this like emotionally relatable, actually human readable type world. It is, however, a slightly older term. It has its roots in actually, um, you know, uh, the apartheid movement, the anti-apartheid activism of the 80s, where, uh, you know, divestment from um, from South African businesses that were uh, propping up apartheid, uh, these really noble roots and they do mm. tend to, there is a strong correlation to specifically divestment, which is a practice, uh, you know, where you like just blanket carve certain investments out of your portfolio. That is not at all the whole story, however, yeah. when it comes to sustainable investing. Um, so at Betterment, we use the term socially responsible investing because it does kind of have that that lineage and it does resonate with people in terms of what people people want to be responsible um but uh you know it's sustainability is kind of is is the, the umbrella term du jour um, yeah and you know i i think it's really important for our listeners a lot of accountants who are thinking about maybe getting into the advisory world uh to talk about the benefits of starting to get up to speed on the news of some of these things that are coming out and the growing demand that you just talked about from you know, some of the millennials. You know, here at Airroot Family Office, we've had conversations as that SRI or ESG has started to kind of broaden where people have come in to say, well, you know, are we doing any of that? Uh, you know, or we've had people that have come to us and said, we would like to do this, especially millennial generation to say, look, my parents invested in Exxon forever and ever and ever, and they've made a lot of money. You know, those people truly believe that there may be an Exxon that's sustainable in a different type of thing, clean energy or what have you, and say, well, 
I think it's a business opportunity because I think that's the way of the future. And they've come to us kind of asking for it. And what we found to be really beneficial is that Betterment has done a lot of legwork to put a very thoughtful framework into that for us to give thoughtful portfolios to our clients for that demand. Are, you know, can you just talk a little bit about the demand that you guys are seeing um, from the Betterment side for these products? Sure. Um, so we launched our first socially responsible uh, portfolio in 2017, actually. And that was very much in response to what clients were asking for. Clients mm-hmm. were coming to us and, say, and were saying, hey, we would like to we would like our investments to reflect our values. We want to invest sustainably. Now, even now, much less then, it was, it would always, you would get pretty different answers when you asked, well, what do you actually mean by that? Um, you know, some people, you touched on a few of these, right? Some people think that, you know, investing sustainably is effectively alpha, right? That you can identify something that somehow the market is not pricing in, whether it be, you know, companies that are, if they have better, you know, labor diversity practices, well, eventually in the long term, the market will reward those versus their competitors. The quarterly earnings don't reflect that. Something along those those lines. Uh, even even more, I think, uh, dramatically, right? The transition to a net zero, uh, you know, carbon economy. Not everyone can fully anticipate and bake in the extent to which regulatory shifts will potentially strand assets, devalue. Uh, assets that are, you know, and that this will all happen in a nonlinear fashion, right? That you're not going to get necessarily kind of a gradual, oh, okay, well, these stocks are on the decline. These are on the suddenly, you know, suddenly we'll just have a ton of regulation that will just dramatically impact the valuation of these things. So there are kind of like investment heavy approaches. And then there's, you know, values based and, and really just like a feeling of wanting to be a part of something or to not be a part of something. Um, there are interesting lanes opening up uh, around shareholder activism, where uh, it, this is a form of sustainable investing that actually has nothing to do with what stock you buy or don't buy. You buy them all. It's what you do with the shares and you know, whether you support or uh, initiate shareholder activist campaigns that push towards sustainability goals like you know, engine number one recently did with Exxon, which is a pretty, pretty famous example of that, really put it on the map. Um, so over the years, since 2017, uh, we, we continue to iterate on these offerings and we were very transparent with our clients early on. And I think this is really key uh, now, now as much as then, is to be very clear that this is a very nascent evolving space, mm-hmm. that there is no perfect solution that this is a process and that it's really important for clients to tell their advisors, hey, this matters to me. I'm not sure exactly necessarily, I don't have to know exactly what it is, but investing sustainably matters. And then the advisor um, on, uh, on their end can say, well, I have done some research and I understand to some degree, you know, what this is, what this isn't, what the various, you know, considerations are. But I too don't entirely know what this is. But now that you have told me as my client that this matters to you, I will now on your behalf continue to work on integrating your preferences alongside the core investing mandate of making you more money. This is investing, right? This is not 
first and foremost, sustainable investing is not about changing the world. It's about investing. That's really important. And most clients do appreciate that. Um, so, you know, it, it, there's a, I'll stop there for a second, but I think I think that transparency that this is a work in progress is key. And I think clients respond really well to that. Yeah, speaking about transparency uh, here, Boris, uh, I, you know, I was fascinated by your, your guys' new uh, ETF, Vote ETF. Uh, and I know we talked about the anti-apartheid movement and, and about divestment, but can you kind of touch on, on this Vote ETF uh, and, you know, the push towards uh, you know, promoting a an economy that's uh, uh, more sustainable, um, and how shareholders can vote and and really produce change from inside uh, a company. Sure. So, so I touched on divestment as this kind of like venerable practice uh, that you know has really noble roots and has a, a lot of application when it comes to say, you know, fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Uh, decarbonization of the, the global economy. But there's also this concept of engagement and, and divestment and engagement are sort of kind of a yin and yang. They work, yeah. they work very well together. And while uh, purists may kind of argue uh, that it's really just all about one versus the other, we believe that there's room for both. Um, that it is, it can be very powerful, especially symbolically when, you know, a large pension fund, someone, you know, really kind of high profile says we are pulling out of all fossil fuel stocks that that creates news and it creates you know it shifts the public discourse and eventually leads mm-hmm. to law to, to laws new regulations but we also know that anything that remains profitable and legal will continue to be funded and the more that you know that capital is that the cost of capital is increased to these activities, the more profitable this investment actually winds up becoming <laughs> to, to the people who are unscrupulous about that activity and who mm-hmm. will invest in it nevertheless. So there's, it's kind of like, almost like a savage balancing mechanism act where, you know, as long, as long as the thing is legal, someone will finance it. And so divestment is important because it, it, it sets the, the foundation for eventually changing the laws. But in the meantime, there's also a way to uh, directly alter the course of a business's activities via using shareholder rights. Um, and so of course that uh, ultimately the business is, is run by the board of directors that selects management. Um, and there's a quasi democracy of sorts, right? Where shareholders of a public company in particular um, elect that board and have ultimate power to steer what that business does and doesn't do. You know, if you are interested in Procter and Gamble doing more about deforestation in their supply chain, well, you know, you can express that view via shareholder uh, resolutions. Um, you can hold the company accountable. Uh, and what's interesting, though, is the way that uh, most American investors, just you know, ordinary investors around the world, invest is through index funds. That structure actually. It, it, it places it's the the power to vote those shares to the so-called stewardship teams of the index fund managers. So the vanguards, the Black Rocks, the State Streets, Schwab's, Fidelities of the world, really those first three, the big three they're called, uh, are actually holding voting rights for you know something like twenty percent of every public company. Um, and historically, they've been pretty uh, reluctant. They don't want to rock to, the boat. 
Yeah, they don't want like it's a lot of power. They don't want mm-hmm. that power. They want the assets. They don't need to be put on blast for every single controversial vote right. that's out there. Increasingly, they're not really able to hide away from that power because various uh, activist shareholders are seeing and exploiting this tremendous power and trying to harness it in favor of a sustainability agenda. So engine number one, I think, is, is one of those like pioneers that they saw this, they figured it out. They said, well, we're going to make an economic case for why seeding these sort of pro-transition directors on Exxon's board will actually increase shareholder value. And we're going to lead a campaign and we're going to persuade BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, et cetera, to support our campaign. And they did, and they won. Um, that was that was kind of a that was a historic milestone. That's never really happened before. A climate-based shareholder, mm-hmm. you know, proxy battle. Um, so the fact that they have since launched an ETF, which basically with the intent of curating and and pursuing those kinds of campaigns on behalf of ordinary investors that can just buy this index fund is pretty fascinating and really promising. Um, this, in, in our mind, right, this is a market cap weighted fund. There's no, you know, all the stocks are in there. It's essentially S&P 500. Yeah. You're not choosing what to buy, how to weight, how to tilt. There are no ESG scores. There's just shareholder engagement with those companies. How do we measure that? We don't know. There are no generally accepted metrics for what mm-hmm. constitutes an acceptable voting record and like a sustainable one, right? That all needs to be developed. And I think particularly for your, for your listeners in a world where like, you know, if you can't quantify it, it basically doesn't <laughs> or shouldn't exist, yeah. right? It's, it's a very, it's a very challenging um, domain to try to explain to your clients, well, we think this is important. It is not yet generally agreed upon how to measure how important and whether, and when you determine that something is in fact important, whether the investment is actually meeting that that milestone like these things need to be need to be written um the sec is working on a bunch of it for what it's worth um yeah and you know could you maybe just touch on you know how betterment is trying to quantify that net positive impact and you know that evolution and and how you guys have got to where you are today where that might be going sure so you know, I think we're very careful not to tie ourselves to any one particular evaluation framework because entirely new categories of sustainability are emerging, right? So it feels too early to call any one particular sort of like, oh, this is, you know, this is ESG approved, you know? In fact, we we released in 2020, we kind of... Uh, we went, we listened to our customers. We realized that people care about things like climate and social issues specifically versus caring about someone, some funds ESG score. And well, that's a great foundation, right? That just to build a portfolio, we wound up releasing a standalone climate impact portfolio and a social impact portfolio so that clients can actually choose, well, okay, you know, of course, all these issues, all kinds of issues are important to me, but if I had to prioritize them, this would be my number one issue. And then that does give you a little bit of focus to say, okay, well, you know what? Like Exxon may have a lot of women on their board, but they're still lagging their sector when it comes to, you know, carbon readiness, uh, transition readiness. 
how do you resolve those tensions? You kind of can't, right? <laughs> it is, it's, it's sort of, it is kind of wishful thinking that a single number can somehow make a company good or bad. You have to sort of choose what you measure and, and, and drive towards those metrics. So at Betterment, we've, we've been careful to sort of be transparent with our clients that the space is evolving, the way in which you can kind of measure whether someone is living up to what they say is still evolving. We're 24 seven, like paying, like we have a team of experts that is researching this on behalf of our clients. Um, when it comes to voting records, truly like it is, it is day yeah. zero, right? Um, so what we tell our clients is the moment that something is becoming clearer, we will begin to integrate that on your behalf. Like you are, we are your, your money managers. You've come to us and you've told us this is, this is important to you. This is what we're going to do for you. It's a relationship. It's an ongoing service. It's not like a, a one and done, you know? Um, so that's, that's, that's resonated. That's huge. You know, um, traditionally for the wealth manager, you know, that has a client that says, I want to invest ESG, that wealth manager has to go out there and try to figure that out by themselves. But uh, that wealth manager now has the ability to lever, leverage that team that Betterment is doing 24 seven to provide really well thought out uh, information directly to that, to that client. And, you know, the other thing that I thought was really fascinating, and, and I think the same study that was released in 2020 by you all, is that, um, you know, women and Gen Z are more likely to want ESG than men. And we've always been a big proponent of, first, on the first side, that there's this huge population of women uh, that are being serviced by male advisors uh, that are not being serviced, serviced well. And secondarily, all the data shows that wealth managers, as well as probably accountants as well, a majority uh, do not get the children of the clients that they're servicing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So not only is this a really well thought out way to start getting involved in a space that is in demand, but it's also a way for practitioners to get more clients, right? By being somewhat versed in what large swaths of the population of potentially new clients for accounting firms, wealth, wealth management firms, technology firms, um, to address this addressable market that you know, isn't being really well served if we're being totally honest, uh, broadly across the market. You know, how do you guys, you know, how do, was that a big, a big pool for you guys to get, get into this as well? Well, so, I mean, our median, uh, client, I think is somewhere around 35, 36 years old. Um, when it comes, when we look at clients that are choosing the, the socially responsible strategies, you know, maybe that's, that's a couple of years younger, right? So that we, we do see there's a statistically meaningful shift, but it's already a relatively young client base. Um, and I think it's, it's really just a question of meeting clients where their, I guess, emotional like complexities around their money lies. You know, money is a very emotional thing. Even before you get, you know, you start injecting, you know, climate change and, uh, and you know, and justice into, into things. So it's in, in some sense, like that conversation between a client 
and an advisor is always, you know, you can pretend it's about the numbers, but it's never just about the numbers, right? Um, any advisor that's kind of, you know, held a client's hand through, I don't know, like the 2008 market crash or like, like, you know, that so much of this is about psychology and it's about trust mm -hmm. and it's about, you know, um, sort of establishing that kind of lifelong relationship, which can endure these complexities. Um, and so I think, I think when it comes to values, um, yeah, like younger, the younger generation, it's, this isn't like boutique. This isn't like a little sprinkle. This is, this is the whole game now. Like if you have no answer to how sustainable are my investments, you're not going to get that generation period, right? You will become niche, like if, if, uh, if, if at all, right? And it's, but the good news is it is really more of a narrative than it is an answer. And I mean that like in the best possible way, because and clients generally respond very well to, uh, well, just transparency, you know? And, and I think mean, when it comes to sustainable investing, it's uh, an advisor isn't actually revealing themselves as ignorant by saying, look, there are just a lot of things we don't know. There are a lot of gaps here because the entire industry will tell you that. Like we obsessively study this and we can tell you here where the gaps are. Now, I think it's really useful to also have an answer to what is the roadmap towards closing those gaps? You know, for instance, we rank companies based on their carbon footprint. You know, there's this concept of scope one emissions, scope two emissions, scope three emissions. Those numbers, so the various like, you know, climate carbon based index funds that are somehow doing something with that information, um, you know, they're taking that data. That is all self-reported. That is not, no, no big four accounting firm is signing off on these numbers, right? The, the methodology is all over the place. Mm -hmm. Some companies simply choose not to report it, period, right? So on some level, how can you blame really anyone, whether it's MSCI who's construct, trying to construct an index whether it's BlackRock who's using that index to construct an ETF, whether it's an advisor who's trying to build a portfolio out of these ETFs. I mean, the fundamental like input to this whole system is flawed, but that doesn't mean it will be that way forever, right? Like this chain is being assembled, you know, on the one side you say clients say this matters to me. And on the other side, well, there's the data has got to be there to actually do something meaningful about that, to express that preference. And the SEC is about to release something called the climate, it's, it's called the climate rule colloquially inside the SEC, um, which was proposed you know, for, for, for comments, I guess, like earlier in 2021 and is expected, the, the proposed regs are expected to drop like any day, honestly. It, I think it's not getting enough attention, but it will. Many people say this is probably the most transformative piece of SDC rulemaking in a decade, um, because it will, if, if it goes as expected, it will effectively bring carbon footprint, you know, emissions from the business's operations into the fold and require your, your public accountants to certify these numbers. Ch transforming the status quo where it's like, oh, a bunch of self-reported, you know, who knows, like, you can imagine, by the way, that like if you if you do a little bit of like reasoning, who do we think is is not reporting or reporting or underreporting? Probably it's not probably random. It's probably the ones that are emitting the most, right? Yeah. So there's just like so much. I mean, you could just go to town on how unreliable this data has to be, right? But once it becomes a matter of 
public certification by a big four, you know, accountant. Like that's, I mean, that's a that's a sea change in terms of the reliability of that data. So when I say it's a nascent space, I mean the quality of the data available to the index constructor, to the index fund manager, to the advisor is about to change dramatically, right? So it's okay that we don't know yet because it's really just early innings. It's We're formulating the rules of the game, it seems like, Boris. Yeah. yeah, systemically, it is moving in the right direction. And the fact that it's not fully there yet doesn't mean it's somehow too early to start because people, the reason why the SEC and the SEC has cited this in, in their rulemaking, they look to the asset flows that are going into these ESG funds. They say, you know, you've got like, Commissioner Allison Heron Lee in her speeches last year saying 50 billion flowed into ESG funds in 2020. They look to those top line numbers as justification for why these rules need, up, need to be updated. The fact that people are moving in off the sidelines is what is creating the momentum for this regulatory action. So all these pieces are moving in concert. For an advisor to say, you know what, you, you come to me as, as my client and you tell me this matters and you can be a part of this change. You can, you can help spin this flywheel, even if the thing isn't totally ready yet, mm-hmm. and maybe it never will be. You can be a part, it's a process and you can be a part it's of it. It's a step process, in the right direction, right? yeah. yeah. Spe- and speaking on that, Boris, you know, I, I, I saw in one of your uh, pieces or one of your materials, um, some of these diverse ETFs that are out there. There's the NACP, uh, which I believe is offered by uh, Impact Shares and they track the Morningstar Minority Empowerment Index, which I think it rates companies on minority empowerment. And then there's the SHE uh, stock ETF that allows investors to invest in female-led uh, companies. Can you kind of talk about these various ETFs, um, these diverse ETFs that are, that are being uh, sure. put out there? Yeah. I mean, again, like, right, there, is, there, are, there are data issues here, right? Not, mm. not all American public corporations are even properly reporting sort of like, you know, diversity metric. What the NACP ETF does in particular, it's based on the NAACP's uh, mm-hmm. methodology for evaluating, uh, you know, how companies, uh, how American public corporations fare on, on effectively issues of, of racial justice, whether it's, you know, diversity, uh, you know, among leadership, but also how, it, you know, how these companies uh, you know, interact with their communities and their mm-hmm. labor force and, you know, whether or not their products are somehow, uh, you know, have, have some sort of impact. Uh, it's a pretty sophisticated methodology. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to sort of like look at the output and say like, well, why did this company make the index and not this one? It's more about like you're voting for the index methodology. You're saying, you know what? We trust that the people that are thinking about this full-time that are designing these metrics and that these metrics, by the way, are publicly you know, available. You can look at the index construction data from Stainalytics, uh, which is a Morningstar company. Mm-hmm. You can, you can, you know, reasonable people can kind of disagree and they're constantly iterating on this methodology. But the point is that like by, by putting dollars in these ETFs, you are telling the industry, this matters to me. I'm not sure exactly what this is at this point, it is an, it, it's, it's a process by which we are trying to understand what kind of quantifiable methodologies make sense here, how we want to effectively, you know, reward the leaders, punish the laggards. There's a much broader sort of like theory of change here, 
but the first step is just at least saying i want to be a part of that yeah um and i think that that it makes the index methodology is really the stars like you're, you're voting for that yep and and you know kind of uh shifting gears just a little bit away from from the esg you know betterment is, was one of the first to automate this kind of uh, tax loss harvesting, tax efficiency uh, portfolio. And, you know, we've got a lot of accountants on here that uh, know that they're constantly having to tell their clients, hey, have you told your advisor to do some tax loss harvesting? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. could, you, could you maybe talk uh, to the power that Betterment has provided for tax efficiency um, and tax loss harvesting? Sure. So um, as a former tax lawyer, this is very, very dear to my heart. Um, I think, you know, so we, we did launch our tax loss harvesting, automated tax loss harvesting service, uh, I want to say 2014, or uh, it's been a while. And we've, we've certainly like iterated on that. And I think, I think the idea of, you know, being able to squeeze some amount of tax alpha out of a diversified global portfolio, you know, there'll be a, a year where, You've got, you know, emerging markets are getting killed, you know, domestic, Mm -hmm. it's propping up the overall allocation. A couple of years later, it reverses, you know, and suddenly like, oh, the S&P 500 is not doing so great, but like, but look at, check out, you know, in the brick, you know, uh, allocation uh, or some some such, right? So the the idea that you should be able to, in an automated fashion, uh, just realize as many losses as, as you can without fundamentally you know mucking up your asset allocation is one i think that advisors are pretty familiar with um another thing that we've we've launched we launched a few years ago which we call the tax coordinated portfolio is is really an automated asset location service where if in given a number of accounts with different tax profiles, you know, whether like a taxable brokerage account, a, uh, a tax deferred sort of a traditional IRA 401k or uh, a t- fully tax exempt Roth type account, uh, you know, people will probably be familiar with this idea of like, hey, well, certain assets just have a far better, you know, long term after tax returns, depending on where they sit because of the nature of the income they generate. So one thing that Betterment does, which uh, to my knowledge, nobody has automated uh, in the industry still to date, is we manage a single portfolio across all of your different account types. So you could have your, you know, you could have a traditional and a Roth and a taxable account. And rather than just putting the same portfolio in each pro rata, we will just, we will locate the assets where they generate the the highest expected long-term return after taxes. Um, there are a lot of rules of thumb around this, but actually automating this in a rigorous way is uh, you'll wind up with some surprises. You know, it's not necessarily that, oh, this kind of asset always goes here. It, it depends. Um, so that's another thing we've worked on very, and we're very proud of. Yeah, ex- exceptionally powerful, um, you know, for CPAs that have traditionally, you know, outsourced wealth management or referred wealth management out to probably some great wealth managers out there, but, you know, Betterment really provides a lot more certainty that there's a household approach, asset location, and tax efficiency is something that is important, right? Not just to the client, but increasingly as accountants get into this, it adds a lot of value, you know, to say, look, you know, 
We can't quantify the amount that we think this is going to be beneficial for you, but let us show you some data why asset location, tax loss harvesting could be really beneficial to you in the future. Uh, that can be a real value add for a lot of accounts. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the things that actually we're quite envious of, right, when it comes to, uh, say, an advisor who is also an accountant is there are some core principles, right, that we're able to, to code into, into our algorithms. Like, you know, you are going to want to accelerate losses and defer gains. There are very, very few exceptions to that rule. Like, there are some, but generally speaking, that's probably going to apply to, to, almost, to almost any client situation. However, in order to get more sophisticated and drive even more value, getting visibility into the, a client's full tax situation, you know, there might be, there are a lot of accounts out there. There's only one tax return, right? Mm-hmm. It all has to flow together. And so uh, having that visibility that, that you would have as, as the CPA for the client offers some really, really powerful, I think, strategic advantages ultimately. Uh, that that an online um, automated service really can just kind of begin to chip away at. So we see ourselves as a tool for, for instance, you know, our Betterment for Advisors business line functions is just that way, right? Like we can automate a whole host of uh, tax features that we know are beneficial within the scope of that portfolio. But it's ultimately up to the CPA to take a broader look and say like, well, just how much do I value this kind of loss versus this kind of you know gain, given what else I know is happening in my client's tax year or will happen? Um, so that's that's also really interesting. You know, the idea of like bumping in between tax brackets and how you might have you know marginal income actually push have really unexpected you know impact on on other pieces of income. Like this is the kind of stuff that you know we'd love to automate. And someday I think. You know, uh, there might be more tools that that scratch at that, but uh, not not for a very long time. Um. Great, yeah. I mean, we I think we need to do a whole another episode, Boris, on on tax efficient strategies and, and betterment solution. Uh, I think our our accounting firm audience would would really love that. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, uh, Rob. What a great guest. Uh, you know, we learned about ESG investing. Uh, these different types of ETFs, uh, you know, I'm super excited. Uh, we uh, we were early believers. As soon as Betterment led advisors come on, to yeah. platform, we have been uh, huge believers. So we want to thank you, uh, you know, Boris, for coming on and for all the work that Betterment does, you know, not just for our clients and our advisors um, and our accounting partner firms, uh, but for you know the, the broad industry as well. It, uh, it's really been fantastic. And I think it's been a huge drive for change in some of these areas that really needed to change. So really appreciate your time and, and hoping to have yeah. you back on uh, sometime soon. Yeah, I really, really had an amazing fun time talking about all this stuff. It's not often that I get to talk about both sustainability and tax in the same conversation. And, thank and with you UBS for, just uh, buying Wealthfront, Boris, yeah. you guys are the only ones left out there. Well, that's right. That's right. The shiniest um, one. Well, the shiniest one. Well, you know, we're we're in it for the long haul, so you know these are these are just blips along the journey. Yeah. Um, we want to we want to serve our clients, uh, and we want to help advisors serve their clients um, throughout their lives. So, um, not never losing track of that. Love it. Thanks so much, Boris. Thank Talk you, Boris. You. Thank you.
All opinions expressed by Rob Santos and Rory Henry on this website podcast interview are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Arrowroot Family Office LLC or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their opinions. Past performance is not indicative of future results.